Good morning. <laughs> it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, this has been, uh, I think, the most challenging message preparation I've ever had. Um, and, and I ask you to send up a prayer at this moment for me that I can really stay focused on the things that count, because this is an amazing topic, the fear of God. There's so much more that can and should be said about the fear of God than can possibly be said in one message or even in several. And it is such an, a hugely foundational, important, ever-present theme in Scripture. Our study today will almost certainly raise more questions than it answers. Um, but my prayer is that it will stimulate your thinking about a matter that goes to the very core of what it means to truly know God and to respond to a true knowledge of God. There's uh, certainly nothing I'll say in this message that hasn't been said many times by others, but I must say I believe that the fear of God is a biblical theme that has been seriously underplayed, downplayed by the church in our modern era despite the fact that it, again, pervades the Word of God from cover to cover. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 tells us, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That Old Testament word wisdom, chokmah, is a very powerful word. It speaks of moral skill that comes from the knowledge of the character of God. The skill to make wise decisions, even when those, deci- those decisions are uh, very, very difficult to make. In order to have godly wisdom, you must have godly fear. That fear is the focus of our attention this morning. We're going to move quickly. We're going to cover a lot of passages. And so I'm going to put a number of passages up here on the screen for you and especially portions of them. But what I would ask is that you not let this be a substitute for your own text of of the Scripture. Uh, There's a reason this is called the Bible Church. And uh, it's good for you to see what we're talking about in the context of, of the passage. Now, since we do have a lot to cover, I want to first show you where we're going, Haddon Robinson style, so that you'll have a clear picture of the overall flow of ideas as we examine each. These are the five points that we're going to talk about. And they're forceful points. First, in the Bible, the word fear always means fear. It is always about being afraid. Second, godly fear proceeds from knowing and believing that God is the only one who can truly do either harm or good to us. Third, the believer is not exempt from the fear of very real harm from the hand of God. Fourth, God's grace toward us as believers compels us to draw near to Him, even as we know that He is fearsome above all things. This is the fear that attracts. Lastly, as we draw near to God on His terms, we have no cause to fear punishment from His hand. Perfect love casts out fear. Now, that's a lot to cover, right? (laughs) Well, we're going to do our best. First point, throughout the Bible, 
the word fear always means fear. It's about being afraid. There are uh, two words that are predominant in all of Scripture that are translated fear. The first in the Old Testament is Yahweh. Uh, overwhelmingly translated with the word fear, occasionally translated to be afraid. These are the verb forms and there are nouns that match up to them. In the New Testament, the word phobeo, from which we get the English word phobia. Uh, both words mean to be afraid. Uh, I will try to demonstrate that as we go. Um, these these two key words occur many, many, many times. Now, there are, and I'm going to back up one so I don't distract you with that slide. And I want to say this. There are many modern theologians who would have us believe that fear is a sort of Old Testament precursor to faith. That it's a primitive form of response to God. That should be replaced by those who have the fullness of, of God's revelation by an ever-positive uh, approach toward faith. But, beloved, fear and faith are two sides of the same coin. Not only are they not mutually exclusive, they cannot be mutually exclusive. For anyone who's paying attention... The fear of God represented in the scriptures is the kind of fear that produces amazing clarity about one's course of action. We either get with God's program and abandon our own, or we experience a great deal of pain from his hand. Grateful obedience brings unimaginable blessing. Disobedience brings unimaginable curse. And we're called to choose blessing, not curse. The choice is actually uh, amazingly simple and unambiguous. The question is what, what we do with that choice. Now, I want to look at a few ex- of many examples, and believe me, it's just a few <laughs> of many, that demonstrate the nature of the biblical fear of God. First, we're going to look at a few examples of those who failed to rightly fear God and what transpired as a result of that failure. First one, Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, who first got to carry out the the priestly duties immediately after, in Leviticus chapter 9, God sent out holy fire from his presence to ignite the flames of the altar and to demonstrate that he had blessed all that had been consecrated. The altar, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, the, the tabernacle, the whole thing came from his mind, by his design, through his enablement, giving the the appropriate skill to the men who constructed all of it. It was his tabernacle. And he blessed it with his holy fire. Well, Nadab and Abihu, immediately after this, come into into the holy place of the tabernacle with what the Scriptures call strange fire. They apparently took coals of fire that were from some other source than the fire that God had ignited. So, since they decided to approach God... On their own terms, God ignited them. Fire came out, the same fire, came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died in an instant before the Lord. And look at what Moses says to Aaron right after this. 
It is what Yahweh spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. Got it? If you don't, I just gave you an object lesson. That's what God's saying to his people. Second Samuel chapter 6. The context, of course, is that David has ordered that the ark be taken up from Baal Judah and brought over to Jerusalem. It's right after his coronation in Hebron as king. Uzzah, uh, acting with what at first seems to be good intentions, failed to appropriately fear God when he reached out to steady the Ark of the Covenant as it was about to fall off an ox cart on which God had made it infinitely clear it should never have been placed in the first place. There was a reason God told Israel to put rings and poles in the Ark. They were to carry it by hand, and he even designated which of the Levites were supposed to carry it. Well, Uzzah tried to steady the ark as it was falling off the cart, and as soon as he touched it, that was the last thing that he did. And if you think this is just an Old Testament phenomenon, look at Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira had just deceived the disciples about the magnitude of the money that they got from the sale of their property, and so they gave just a little of it, laid it at the apostles' feet, and patted themselves on the back. Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, knew what the reality of the situation was. And he said to Ananias, you have not lied to men but to God. Ananias was allowed one breath after Peter convicted him of his sin, and that was the last breath that he took. Then three hours later, when his wife came to where the disciples were, we got a repeat of the same thing. And I love this. As he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and then Sapphira. And in both cases, it says, great fear came upon all those who heard of it. I put the Greek up there because I love it. Phobos megas, mega fear. Mega fear fell upon those, all of those who heard it. Did these people have reason to be afraid of God? Or was God just looking for a little respect? Uh, it's pretty obvious from the outcome. Their failure to be afraid of God was their undoing. And their undoing was an object lesson that produced mortal fear in those who witnessed God's judgment against them. There are also many passages in God's Word, in which men and women do appropriately demonstrate godly fear. Especially, especially after having beheld some manifestation of the presence of God, the glory of God. Uh, you're familiar with some of these. Judges chapter 13, I'm only going to be able to put a couple of these up here, but there are many. There are lots of these kind of passages. Judges 13, Manoah and his wife, the parents of Samson. They'd just been talking with the angel of Yahweh. Manoah didn't quite understand who he was talking to yet. And then they made this fire, this offering, uh, and the one that they had just been speaking with ascended in the flame of the fire. Well, 
Manoah, at that point it says he knew that this was the angel of Yahweh. And he said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. That's a healthy response to an encounter with our God. Isaiah chapter 6, this is a little bit more familiar passage. In the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah has a vision of Yahweh enthroned in his temple, the glory of his robe uh, filling the, the, the temple. There's the threefold, the holy, holy, holy by the seraphim who are the, the, those who proclaim the holiness of God and are with his presence at all times. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of armies. That is a healthy response, an appropriate response to an encounter with God. Did these people merely revere God, respect God, or were they afraid of God? The answer again is obvious. They encountered God, not even the fullness of His glory, because if they had seen the fullness of His glory, they would have perished on the spot. But they saw veiled representations or visions of His glory, and they fell on their faces in mortal fear, believing that they were ruined and that they were on the verge of death. They trembled in fear for the very lives. All right, so the first point I want to drive home is Oops, is that, very simply, when the Bible speaks of fear, it means being afraid. Uh, there are lots of passages that will corroborate everything that we've just looked at. And by the way, when the Bible is talking about the fear of the Lord, it's talking about a danger that is more intense than any other danger that man will ever encounter. A watered-down concept of the fear of God is a violation of God's Word, and it is a denial of who God is. We live in a culture that doesn't have a clue about the fear of God. But most, unfortunately, the Church of Jesus Christ seems to be moving further and further in the direction of trivializing the biblical concept of fear. And I believe that that is true, especially though not exclusively, of the younger members of the church of Jesus Christ. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Second point I want to talk about is that the only one, according to Scripture, who can truly do either harm or good is God. We think there are lots of different sources of good and of bad. The Bible says that that is not so. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28 through 30, we see the foundation in Scripture for everything else that's said regarding blessing and curse, judgment and restoration in God's dealings with His people. And one of the things that we find in that section of the Scriptures is that blessing and curse do not come from a situation, a person, or a created thing. 
Blessing and curse come only from the hand of God. And to ascribe to a person, a situation, or a thing the power either to bless or to curse is what God calls idolatry. In fact, it goes to the very heart of idolatry. In Jeremiah 10, the passage that our brother Rick just read, we find, among other things, that God does, in fact, have a sense of humor. <laughs> he, with, with dripping sarcasm, he mocks the fact that Israel is enamored with gods of wood and stone, wood and stone like the, the nations that surround them. He says, you take this piece of wood and you make it into something, and if you want it to stand up, you have to tack it up because otherwise it'll fall over. He says, if you want it to move, you have to carry it because it can't move on its own. And then you worship it. He says, like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they. They cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. There is none like thee, O Lord. Thou art great, and great is thy name. Who would not fear thee, O King of the nations? Indeed, it is thy due. There is none like thee. The words that are used there, put in parentheses the Hebrew, ra'ah is harm and tob is good. I'm going to talk a little bit about those words because they are very, very common words in the Old Testament. The first word, ra'ah, is the bad stuff. These are just a few of the uh, common translations of the word. Calamity, disaster, adversity, distress, harm, ill, misery, bad. But you know what the number one most common, overwhelmingly most common translation of this word is? I saw Ray say it to Natalie. Evil. It's the most common translation 115 times in the NASB, about that many in the King James and New King James. And you know what? It's translated that way whether it's talking about something that comes from the hand of men or something that comes from the hand of God. We have a hard time with that idea. That, that evil comes from the hand of God. Okay, we'll, we'll go a little further and then we'll talk about that some. Tob, the antonym, the opposite of ra'ah, there's almost only one translation of that word in the, in the Old Testament and it's the word good. There are a few exceptions. It's translated sometimes beautiful, delightful, desirable. But 198 times in the New American Standard it's translated good. Good and bad. Good and evil. Isaiah chapter 41 is very similar to uh, Jeremiah when it talks about these two ideas. Uh, it's speaking again, God is speaking to the false gods of, of Israel, mocking them. And once again, he says, declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do tov or ra'ah, do good or evil. It's interesting that Nazbi here translates it evil and in Jeremiah 10 translates it harm. Do either good or evil that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. 
Behold, you are of no account. Your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. Now, I want to be clear about this. The Scriptures are very straightforward about the fact that God does not sin. God is perfectly holy. Indeed, holiness is defined by the character of God. Sinless purity is an attribute of our God. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. But, beloved, if we say that the harm that has come upon us and upon all of creation as a consequence of man's sin does not come from the hand of God, then we've got a very faulty concept of the sovereignty of God. The Bible is far too clear on this point for us to dodge it, no matter how much we'd like to dodge it, no matter how much I'd like to dodge it. Why are the false gods not to be feared? Because they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. They can't do evil or good. Why is God alone worthy of fear? Because He alone, He alone is the source of all harm and all good. There is no other. The same theme goes on and on in the Scriptures. Lamentations chapter 3. This is uh, an amazing little book written by Jeremiah right after, right in the aftermath of the siege of Jerusalem. A year and a half, Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian, his Babylonian army and his Chaldean mercenaries, vicious, ruthless hordes of, of, of people, came down on, upon Jerusalem and they besieged the city for a year and a half. They cut off the water, they cut off the food supply. The things that happened during that period of time were precisely prophesied in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. And they came true to the letter. And the things that happened in that siege were so severe that I can't talk about them when there are children in the room. Daniel 9 and Ezekiel 5 say it was a judgment unlike any other that has ever befallen men. Jeremiah said, Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless Yahweh has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth. All the stuff that happened in that city, he says, came from God. All right. Let's see if, okay, here we go. Job. After Satan had killed all of Job's children, destroyed all his livestock, covered him with boils from head to toe so that he had to, to break pieces of pottery and scrape himself. Job's wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. How's that for wifely counsel? But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? It's the same two words. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, by the way, we know that when you're studying Job, there are times you look at certain things and you say, are we supposed to buy into this? Is God calling this good counsel or bad counsel? Well, God says right here, in this, Job was speaking the truth. And who did Job blame for the bad? Satan? No. God. Satan had to ask permission before he did anything to Job. 
God is the only one who can truly do either harm or good to you. He alone is the source of every blessing and of every curse. There is no other. If you ascribe to, God, to, to created beings or created things the ability to bless or to curse, you are practicing idolatry. God is the one who alone can do either harm or good to you because every form of harm or good that exists in this universe is 100% under His sovereign control. Our idols today may seem to be more subtle than the wooden stone of the Israelites and the pagan nations, but they take all kinds of shapes. Some men and women see their spouse as the real source of blessing or of curse in their lives. I can't tell you how many times I've heard a professing Christian say, he ruined my life, or she ruined my life. That's idolatry. And by the way, it makes an absolute train wreck of a marriage. Your spouse will never be the source of good or harm to you. He or she is merely an instrument. God is the source. The same goes for your children. If you think that your children can truly bless or harm you, you're putting them in God's place. Eventually, they'll figure out that your actions toward them are based on the fact that you are afraid of what they might do to you, and that will take a pretty heavy toll on your relationship with them. Lord knows I've been guilty of going in that direction. I'm not saying that God's grace cannot overcome that kind of a hit. But it makes a serious mess when you put people in the place of God. The same goes for money. If you think money is the source of blessing or the absence of money is the source of cursing, that's idolatry. You can't serve God and mammon at the same time. Same goes for sex, or entertainment, or anything else in creation. These things can do you no true harm or good. So why do we spend so much time worrying about it? There is only one source. And God's response to idolatry in the lives of His children is to break us of it. No matter what kind of pain it takes to do it, because He's all about making us holy. By the way, this also touches on forgiveness. It is a whole lot easier to forgive someone if you're not afraid of them. If you ascribe to a person the ability to truly do harm to you, it makes it harder to forgive them. And it's based on very, very false suppositions. Unforgiveness is most often rooted in misplaced fear. Young people, not just young people, but I want to speak specifically to the young people here. If you think that you can be near to God while you live your life on your own terms, you're living a lie. God is not going to get with your program. And if you don't get with His, 
you will not enjoy what it takes for him to correct you. God is and will be always infinitely more interested in your holiness than he is in your happiness. And if you figure that out and you get on the same program as his, life is just a whole lot more joyful. It makes a whole lot more sense. And it's not complicated. Righteousness is dirt simple. Sin is complicated. All right, so far I hope we've established a couple of key things. First, in the Bible, the word fear always means fear. It means to be afraid. And God is the one and only legitimate object of our fear. Secondly, biblical fear... Fear of God has both a powerful negative connotation and a powerful positive connotation. Fearing God means that we know and believe that he is the one who can do the greatest harm or the greatest good. And that brings an important question. Do we who believe in Jesus Christ still have cause to fear God? Or I'll amplify that, to be afraid of God. For us who have trusted in Jesus as our Savior, whom God has redeemed and called his people, his inheritance, even his friends, do we still have cause to fear God? You bet. One of the most grievous problems in the church today is the absence of appropriate fear of God. There's this strong element of licentiousness that is growing in the modern church, and it has its roots in an utterly foolish failure to reckon with the fearsomeness of our God. We've already said that the fear of God is getting the fact that He alone is able to do either good or harm to us. That awareness doesn't go away when you become a believer. Indeed, the more that you and I, as His children, encounter Him through His Word, through His works, and through His people, the more profound and enhanced our fear of him should become. Those who know him best fear him most. What changes when you become a believer is that the content of your fear is different, not the object of your fear. You go from being his enemy to being his child, and man, that counts for a whole lot. Your guaranteed destiny changes from eternal destruction to eternal blessedness. And God wants you to know that. He doesn't intend for his his children to spend their lives guessing how they will spend eternity. Guessing whether they'll end up blessed or cursed. He wants you to know. One of the verses that... The night that I trusted the Lord Jesus as my Savior, one of the verses that absolutely rocked my world was 1 John 5.13. These things I have said to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. For the one who is a child of God, by God's amazing grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, God is still the one who can do the greatest harm or the greatest good to you. And guess what? Please hear me. This side of heaven, you who are God's child 
have more to worry about from the hand of God than the one who is not God's child. Let me defend that. (laughs) Amplify it first. As his covenant child, you have his promise as a perfectly faithful father that he will chastise you when you go off his reservation precisely because you are his child. If you think God's going to turn a blind eye to your sin because he's so loving and he saved you so he can't do anything bad to you, then you don't understand who you're dealing with. The relativistic Make it up as you go nonsense that characterizes the lives of far too many professing Christians is exceedingly dangerous stuff. You can call it postmodernism or whatever you want to. There's nothing new about it. Lies are still lies just like they've always been. Doesn't matter how little or how white they are. Sexual promiscuity is still a defilement of the very dwelling place of God which your body happens to be. Living together is still fornication. God doesn't care if you like the word or not. Marital infidelity is still adultery, as is lust. Love of money and of stuff is still unholy, ungodly greed. What some people call an alternate lifestyle is still an abomination in the eyes of the only one that matters, right along with promiscuity, adultery, greed. They're all in the same list. And by the way, divorce is still a breaking of covenant with God no matter how good you think it is for the kids. Everything that deviates from God's character is still a violation of the holiness of God. If you think times have changed and God should somehow be expected to temper His holiness to accommodate a new state of the moral union, guess again. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, indeed, forever. The times can change all they want, but the holiness of God and the unholiness of sin remain the same. Now please understand, I am not saying, and God's word is certainly not saying, that we receive no forbearance or patience from God as his children. Exodus chapter 34, this amazing declaration that God makes about himself as his glory passes in the, uh, by Moses, in the face of Moses, veiled. As the Lord passes by Moses, he says, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. But look at the very next statement. Yet he will by no means leave unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. By the reason, by the way, the reason I don't have the word leaves the guilty unpunished it's because the guilty is not in there okay the passage says god does not leave unpunished now a lot of people look at that and they say that last part's talking about unbelievers we don't have to worry about that that's talking about unbelievers you know what that's especially talking about god's covenant people 
God has always been compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding loving kindness and truth. Yes, but He will by no means leave unpunished. And this side of heaven, that is most especially true of those whom He has declared to be His. Amos chapter 3, verse 2. God says to His covenant people Israel, You only have I chosen out of all the peoples of the earth. Therefore, guess what? I will punish all your iniquity. Was Israel in a less fearful place because they were God's covenant people? No. They were in a more fearful place. Hebrews 12, 4-8. You think this is just an Old Testament concept? No, God says, about sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My Lord, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And every son he receives, he scourges. Go look at a Bible dictionary and at the description of what a scourge is like. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're, when you've got a problem, is if you're without discipline. If you're without the discipline of God, then you're an illegitimate child and not a son at all. This is God's promise. This isn't a bad thing. This is a good thing. But what it means is we are supposed to understand that we can receive a lot of pain from the hand of God if we're not getting with His agenda. Now there's an interesting paradox in the Scriptures uh, with regard to uh, the believer's fear. And that is that He tells us over and over to fear Him and then He turns right around and tells us not to be afraid. It's uncanny how many times in Scripture God manifests Himself in such a way to His people that they become very afraid and then He immediately says to them, do not fear. And it's equally uncanny how often in those same passages He then turns right around and again says, fear. If that sounds paradoxical, that's because it is. It's one of the many paradoxes in Scripture. If you think you're going to get your hands around the fullness of God, you might as well just stop trying. <laughs> it's not going to happen. There are a lot of tensions that we can't fully resolve, and we and there's a reason that God put them in the, into His Word. But I do believe that God's Word gives us some basis for reconciling, at least in part, this apparent contradiction. Exodus chapter 20. Israel is at the foot of Mount Sinai and they are receiving the commandments of God. That was an amazing day. There was fire on the mountain. There was smoke on the top of the mountain. The whole ground shook. There was lightning and thunder and a trumpet blast from up there. And God declared the Ten Commandments, which He would then give to Moses on Slates of stone. 
And all the people at the foot of the mountain trembled and stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but let not God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come in order to test you and get this. He's come in order that the fear of him may remain with you. (laughs) Go figure. And then the last part, so that you may not sin. 1 Samuel chapter 12. Israel wasn't happy with having God as their king. They wanted a king like all the other nations. A human king. So God said, okay, I'll give you a human king. No doubt because he had some things to teach him about what human kings were like. And Samuel on that day is addressing, this is actually the, the final public address of Samuel. Uh, as 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 judge, if you will, because now there's going to be a king. And he he calls forth to God, and God sends thunder and rain. It's the day of the wheat harvest. He sends thunder and rain, and all the people greatly feared Yahweh and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. <laughs> for we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. And then Samuel says to them, do not fear. You've done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. Serve the Lord with all your heart. And now look at what he says. I love this verse. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. And the last verse of that chapter, the fallback position says, but if you still act wickedly, You will be swept away, both you and your king. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. That's the way it's supposed to work. (laughs) That's the the response of godly fear that leads to blessing. And that blessing puts us in a position where we don't have to be afraid of punishment from the hand of God. Fear, but do not fear. Matthew 10, 28 through 31. Jesus is speaking to the twelve just as he's about to send them out to heal and to preach the gospel. And he says to them, not to the multitudes, he says to the disciples, do not fear those who can kill the body, talking about the Jewish leaders that were going to accuse them of functioning in the power of Beelzebul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. Fear, but do not fear. Matthew 17, uh, the transfiguration Very similar, the disciples, they're not scared by the transfiguration. They're scared when God speaks from heaven and says, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. They fall to their faces on the ground because they're so scared. That's what the voice of God does to people. All right. How can you fear God and not fear Him at the same time? How does that work? Well, I hope you're starting to get a little hint. 
I want to talk for a minute about the fear that attracts. And I want to say that uh, before I show you this next slide, no analogy can adequately capture uh, the idea of the fear of God. And this one won't. But there's something about this analogy that's helpful, I think. It's uh, a scene from the 2005 movie, Peter Jackson's version of King Kong. And it got my attention. The woman, Andero, has finally managed to escape from Kong, but as she's trying to make her way back through the jungle to her friends, a big T-Rex spots her and says, yum. And he takes off after her, and she, there's this great chase scene where she's just going through the jungle and lots of near misses trying to get away from this Rex. And, and then, Finally, she eludes him, and then there's a second one that goes after her. Well, at one point, in the, she's, she's running for her life with every fiber of her being, and then onto the scene leaps King Kong. And the Rex, the T-Rex that's after her, stops dead in his tracks, and his attention, of course, shifts from this little puny woman to the massive King Kong. At that point, the woman finds herself standing, and you can't see it from this, it looks like she's closer to Kong, but this is the scene. She's standing almost dead center between the T-Rex on one side and King Kong on the other side. And with this bewildered look on her face, the deer in the headlights look, she looks over at the T-Rex, and then she turns and she looks at Kong. She looks back at the T-Rex, and then she looks again at Kong. And then she figures out what she must do. And she runs to King Kong and she stands beside his foot and his foot dwarfs her. And King Kong bangs on his chest and he makes short work out of the T-Rex. And then he grabs up Andero and he takes her back to his lair. Now here's the question. Was she afraid of King Kong? Yeah. <laughs> She was so afraid she was running for her life from him before the T-Rex showed up. So why did she go toward him? Two reasons. She figured out that he was more to be feared than the T-Rex, and she figured out that he cared about her. And the T-Rex cared only to devour her. Again, the illustration's woefully imperfect, and please don't tell people that I compared King Kong to God. But the scene is a pretty vivid representation of the nature of genuine fear. Here's a better one. Psalm chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. This is an amazing psalm. As many psalms of David, it's a messianic psalm. The context is that the kings of the earth have come up against Yahweh and against His anointed, Mashiach, Messiah, seeking to, in their own words, to tear the, their fetters apart and cast away their cords. They're trying to cast off God. They don't like the idea of submitting to God. And this is a coronation psalm. In this psalm, God declares that He has placed His Son upon Mount Zion as the King of kings. And He says all nations have to, have to show their allegiance to this One. 
And he says, now therefore, O kings, show discernment. (laughs) This is real wisdom. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. And then he says this about the anointed one, Mashiach. Do homage to the Son. Literally, kiss the Son. Lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may suddenly be kindled. And the very next statement is, How blessed are all who take refuge, who flee for protection in him. That goes way beyond King Kong. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's the fear that attracts. If you know that there is one who has power over all things and is able to protect and provide for you just as surely as he is able to destroy you with a breath. And if you know that that same one has promised to bless you as you draw near to him on his terms, then what are you going to do? You're going to move toward him and you're going to do it his way. We know that God is the one true source of all actual cursing and all actual blessing. But here's the great part. We whom He has chosen and redeemed know that we are the objects of His blessing because we have that promise from a God who cannot lie. And we have no cause to be confused about how to remain in that blessing. This book clears up the confusion. He hasn't left us to guess. He has told us how to both receive blessing from His hand, and to dwell in blessing from His hand. Pay homage to the Son. Submit and obey. So how do you fear God and not fear Him at the same time? By submitting to Him and taking refuge in Him. There is only one worthy of fear. And that one has made us the objects of His boundless blessing in Jesus Christ. He has told us both how to receive and to remain in that blessing. And He's the one who enables us to do so. He is at work in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. I want to look at 1 John chapter 4. My brother Kerry and I were talking about this with the group on Friday morning, and this is a very, very powerful idea. Perfect love casts out fear. John says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in Him, and He in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. That's what this is talking about, God's love for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this, love is perfected in us. Look at that, because that's talking about the perfect love that comes later. By this, love is perfected in us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as He is, Jesus, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. The first thing I want to point out about this this passage 
is that the fear that is explicitly cast out here is the fear that we might have in the day of judgment. That's what verse 17 says. That we may have confidence in the day of judgment. And the love that casts out that fear of judgment is the love of God that He is perfecting in us. In the day that we stand glorified in the presence of our holy God, the day in which we are made like our Savior because we see Him as He truly is, that's right at the beginning of the previous chapter of 1 John, that very hope to which we are called according to John 1.3 causes us to have no fear of any punishment from God's hand on the day of judgment. He will be no less fearsome on that day. Indeed, we will bow before Him with the true awareness of His fearsome holiness that is no longer clouded by our sin. And until that day, until we are glorified and sin has been put away from us, the extent to which we have no cause to fear punishment from the hand of God is the extent to which His love is perfected in us. He's already shed that love abroad in our hearts. We don't have to go looking for it. We don't have to muster it up. It's not from us. It's from Him. And beloved, we know that by abiding in His Son, by responding to His loving kindness and grace toward us, not with burdensome rule-keeping, but with grateful submission and obedience, we will receive blessings from His hand that make the pursuit of any other supposed blessing nothing but delusion. And we know that as we abide in Him, we have no cause to fear a destructive harm from Him. That doesn't mean that nothing bad's going to happen to us. It doesn't mean that nothing painful or difficult is going to happen to us. What is God's promise in Romans 8? He didn't say you're not going to have tribulation or distress or nakedness or peril or famine. He says those things are not going to take the love of God away from you. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those things can't harm us. If God is for us, who can be against us? We are in the best possible situation by the grace of God. Beloved, the only one who is worthy of our fear has become our refuge and our strength. He alone is our rock and our redeemer. There is no other. If He is for us, who can be against us? Nothing and no one. If you are here today and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ alone as the one who paid the eternal penalty for sin, who alone can save you from the everlasting destruction that you deserve, then you should be afraid of God in the most intense and pervasive sense of the word afraid. If you aren't afraid of Him, then the day will come when you'll discover that your construct of reality was catastrophically flawed. That the God whom you did not see fit to fear was to be feared more than anything else. Indeed, 
that whatever it is that you have feared in your life is nothing by comparison. The day is going to come when nobody will fail to fear God. When every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, both in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You want to be one of those who does that willingly. Believe in Him alone and be saved. Not only from His wrath, but into His everlasting blessing. I want to close with the passage from Luke 23 at the cross of Christ. He's on that hill at Calvary on a cross and on one side is a thief and on the other side is another thief. And one of the criminals who was there was hurling abuse at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, you and I, justly, because we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said back to him, Truly I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. That second thief got it absolutely right. One of the two thieves at that cross died a fool. With his dying breaths, as he bore condemnation both from God and from men, he mocked Jesus just like the crowds and the soldiers. But the second thief, even with what must have been an imperfect understanding of who Jesus was, turned his eyes to the one most worthy of fear. And he asked Jesus to remember him. And the one who his life granted him on that day eternal life. Father, may we who have been saved by your grace through Jesus Christ. Never think that we can go through this earthly life treating you as an afterthought, expecting you to do things our way. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, that we may know how fearsome you are and how fearsome is your love for us. Lord, when Jesus died on that cross, you tore the veil in two. You removed the barrier of sin that separates us from you. You call us to come boldly and confidently into your throne of grace only on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice. May we never take that lightly, Father. Help us Help us to know who it is that we serve. To know how fearsome is our God and how fearsome is the good that comes to us only from Your hand. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.